You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to part two in our series on Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton. Last time we covered the early years of Shackleton's life, and today we will take the man on his first journey of exploration, and that will be the 1901 Discovery Expedition. Just one note for today. As stated, the focus of this episode will be on the 1901 Discovery Expedition. For this endeavor, Shackleton was just a junior officer, but he will play a very important role in the affair. But understand that I'm going to keep the spotlight on Shackleton, as this is his podcast. When we do a series on Robert Falcon Scott, the Discovery Expedition's commander, I will dive into that enterprise in greater detail. But for this episode, we will keep the focus on Shackleton. We will, of course, talk a lot about the people and events of the expedition, but it will mostly be so that we can understand and appreciate Shackleton's role. So let us talk about the British National Antarctic Expedition, more commonly known as the Discovery Expedition. It was the first official British expedition to the Antarctic since James Clark Ross had ventured to the region some 60 years earlier. It was the brainchild of Sir Clements Markham, the head of the Royal Geographical Society. The cost of the expedition was £100,000. The command structure of the expedition was a bit muddied at first. Markham had gotten a naval officer, Robert Falcon Scott, appointed as the commander. However, the committee organizing the expedition, which was a joint affair between the Royal Geographical Society and the Royal Society, had appointed John Walter Gregory, a professor from the University of Melbourne, as the expedition's scientific director. And this led to a clash between the science versus discovery camps. Gregory and his supporters felt that once boots hit the Antarctic continent, it was the expedition scientific director who should be in charge. Markham, however, argued that there should be no joint command structure, and it should be Scott who had the final say in all matters. Scott was so adamant about the debate that he threatened to resign if forced to share command. In the end, Markham and Scott would win out. The expedition would be, first and foremost, about discovery and exploration. As a result, Professor Gregory would resign his position, saying that scientific work should not be, quote, subordinated to naval adventure, end quote. With all of that in mind, let's go over the stated goals of the Discovery Expedition. First, the expedition was to work in the Ross Sea sector of Antarctica. This was the same region Ross had explored 60 years earlier, and it had recently been traveled to by the Southern Cross Expedition. Here you will find the Great Ice Barrier. Second, there were scientific goals. These were, quote, to make a magnetic survey in the southern regions to the south of the 40th parallel and to carry out meteorological, oceanographic, geological, biological, and physical investigations and researches, end quote. 
And third, there was, of course, exploration and discovery. It was vague, saying, quote, to determine as far as possible the nature, condition, and extent of that portion of the South Polar lands which is included in the scope of your expedition, end quote. This meant explore, discover, and map everything you can. Unsaid in all of this was the South Pole. There's no mention of reaching it, but it was very clear that if the chance came, a push to the pole would be just fine. Thank you very much. Now, one thing I want to stress is how little was known about Antarctica. It's surrounded by ice so often that reaching the actual continent is just not that easy. And thus, almost everything the expedition was going to do and everywhere they went was going to be new. Now, a quick reminder about Antarctica. Sometimes I think we have this vision of it as this flat, windswept surface, like a massive lake. And there are areas like that, such as the Great Ice Barrier. But the continent is actually really diverse. There are mountain ranges and valleys and rivers. Yes, it's mostly covered in ice, but the topography is very unique, just like Europe or Asia or wherever. So that is it for objectives. Let's talk about the makeup of the Discovery Expedition. At the top was the aforementioned Robert Falcon Scott, whose name even sounds like a hero from an adventure novel. Scott will be a very important figure in this series, so we will spend some time meeting him but know that we will, at some point, do a full series on the man. Robert Falcon Scott was born in 1868 in Plymouth, Devon, England. His father was a prosperous brewery owner in Plymouth, and naval and military service was a tradition in the family. Scott would begin his career as a 13-year-old naval cadet. He would move steadily up the ranks, and at 18, he would meet our friend Clements Markham. Markham liked Scott, finding him intelligent and charming, and he would keep an eye on the young man. Scott's career progressed smoothly, and he would serve on several ships all over the world, earning promotion slowly but steadily. Wherever Scott went, he did well and served with distinction. The only blot was in 1893, when a torpedo boat he was commanding ran aground. He would receive a mild rebuke for the incident, but it would not damage his career. Now, in 1894, Scott's father would sell the family brewery, and then promptly lose all the money in a bad investment, bankrupting him. He would be forced to work at a different brewery to keep the family afloat, However, three years later, he would die of heart disease. This was followed by the death of Scott's brother, Archie, in 1898, from typhoid fever while in the colonial service. Scott now had to provide financial support for his mother and two of his unmarried sisters, and thus money was a big concern for him. In June of 1899, Scott would run into Sir Markham in London, and the two would talk about the upcoming Antarctic expedition. Sensing a chance to advance his career, and perhaps make some serious money, Scott would volunteer to lead the enterprise. Now, I want to note that for the Discovery Expedition, Scott and some of the other officers would be loaned by the Admiralty to join the expedition, as this was not a Royal Navy venture, even if Markham wanted it to feel as such. The Royal Navy was somewhat indifferent to the expedition, as they felt that there were more important matters to attend to around the world. However, Scott would run the expedition along naval lines, and even require the crew to work under the Naval Discipline Act. The selection of Scott was a curious one. He was certainly well regarded by his peers, but he was young, in his early 30s, and he had no polar experience. Plus, he had never led any large expedition, such as what was being proposed. Also, Scott would prove to be a very formal man with a military mindset. By that, I mean he worked well by establishing strict rules and guidelines and objectives. This is fine, but it means he'll show a lack of imagination and flexibility when he needs to be innovative and nimble. Also, when things don't go well, he could become moody and irritable, and he hated when people questioned his decisions. All of this makes for a man who was probably not the best leader for an Antarctic expedition. Scott could easily have been aided by a strong supporting cast, but that's not going to be the case. 
The officers and crew of the Discovery were a mix of Royal and Merchant Navy men, and a majority of the crew would be drawn from the ranks of the Merchant Navy. The expedition, at least to begin, would have seven officers, including Scott. Ernest Shackleton is listed as a third lieutenant and was in charge of organizing and stowing the Discovery's cargo, plus the ship's entertainment. In addition to the officers, there would be five doctors and scientists on the expedition, plus 36 crew members. The expedition's scientific contingent was inexperienced. The mix of Royal Navy and Merchant Navy was a spot of contention throughout the expedition. The merchant men disliked the strict rules and regulations imposed on them, and the Royal Navy officers and seamen looked down on their Merchant Navy counterparts. As an example, one Royal Navy seaman dismissed Shackleton as, quote, just a cargo shifter, end quote. Now, one element of the expedition was not human, but animal, and that was the sledge dogs. These were big, husky-type dogs imported from Siberia. The expedition had 25 of them, the intention to have them help pull the heavy sledges. Scott had ordered the dogs after communicating with famed Norwegian Arctic explorer Fridjof Nansen. Nansen had strongly recommended their use, as he and others had had tremendous success with them in the Arctic. It was a great move by Scott, however, there was an issue, and that is that he didn't hire anyone to train and handle the dogs, and that would prove to be a big mistake. Another position not brought on the ship's expedition was an ice master, someone who knew and understood the nuances of guiding a ship into and around and through ice-packed polar waters. The expedition's second-in-command, Albert Armitage, had spent some time in the Arctic, but he was no expert. Such a man could have been found amongst Britain's extensive whaling fleet, but that would have diluted the importance of the real Navy men, as these would have been merchant naval officers. By the way, aside from Armitage, only two others of the crew had any experience in polar regions, a mistake on Scott's part. A few veteran men with polar experience would have been an invaluable addition to the expedition's ranks. So we have talked about Scott, the crew, and the objectives of the expedition. Let's take a moment to look at the expedition's ship, Discovery. Discovery was a 1,600-ton specialist research vessel designed for work in Antarctic waters. An example of this was that it had no portholes, because under the extreme pressure of ice, portholes would have weakened the sides of the ship. Discovery was one of the last three-masted wooden sailing ships built in Britain. It operated under sail or steam, although the sails were used whenever possible so that coal could be conserved. The vessel was built by Dundee Shipbuilders Company in Scotland. Dundee was a major whaling center, and their shipyards specialized in constructing vessels to operate in the polar regions. Discovery was launched on March 21, 1901. So we have spent a lot of time talking about the Discovery Expedition, but not a lot about Ernest Shackleton. So let us change that. Ernest Shackleton was energized by his inclusion in the Discovery Expedition. Ten years on liners and steamers and clipper ships sailing from one anonymous port to another was over. Now he had something really big and meaty to bite into. The idea of being part of something historic really played to his personality and dreams, and he embraced the new job. As noted, Shackleton was in charge of packing and maintaining the holds and stores and provisions. He was also responsible for arranging the entertainment for the crew. Now, Shackleton's job was not simple. He wasn't just tossing stuff into a hold. It was more complex than that, because Discovery was going to be taking on a ton of stuff, or tons of stuff. Shackleton needed to maximize every bit of space on the ship, and he had to do it efficiently and within certain parameters. Example, all of the boxes had to be a maximum of 56 pounds, or 31 kilograms. This was because there were no docks in Antarctica, and the men needed to be able to load and unload boxes under such conditions. Now, being the cargo officer wasn't Shackleton's only job. He would participate in the initial trial runs of Discovery, 
Plus, he took a course in the use of explosives, which could be used to help blast a ship free if caught in the ice. Also, just days before Discovery set sail, Shackleton would be taught the basics of using a hot air balloon, as one was going to be brought on the expedition. In all of this, Shackleton brought confidence, optimism, and energy. It was all new and exciting, and he loved it. Amongst the team, he was quickly seen as a strong personality. As we have talked about in the past, Shackleton moved easily amongst the crew, officers, and scientists. He cared little for social divisions, something some of the upper-class officers found distasteful. He was charming and witty, he loved to tell jokes and stories, and he had a habit of attaching nicknames to people. These were habits that often tried some of the men's patience, but others loved him for his encouraging words and positive attitude. While Shackleton's charms often waned over time, they were very effective when VIPs came aboard Discovery prior to departure for a tour. This was especially true with women. Shackleton was an expert at applying just the right amount of flattery and attention to them. One example was Elizabeth Dawson Lampton. She was so enchanted by Shackleton, she donated a thousand pounds to the expedition. She would later support Shackleton on his own endeavors, and in 1950 have a glacier named after her by Shackleton. Two final notes about Shackleton before we get the discovery to sea. 1. At the invitation of Vice Admiral Sir Albert Hastings Markham, the cousin of the expedition's founder, Sir Clements Markham, Shackleton would be invited into the Freemasons. For Shackleton, this was not really something he was particularly serious about, but he saw it as a way to make important connections within society. To be invited into the Masons was not an insignificant thing. It was, essentially, a wealthy and influential old boys' network, and the invitation was a sign that Shackleton was moving up in the world. Not bad for an Irishman in the Merchant Navy from a middle-class family. The second thing I want to talk about is Shackleton's personal life, and specifically his relationship with Emily Dorman. Shackleton and Emily had been courting for four years. Shackleton had mingled with her and her wealthy family, and he liked the world of the rich and influential. He wanted more. However, Emily's father, Charles Dorman, was reluctant to allow his 33-year-old daughter to marry someone who couldn't provide for her. Charles Dorman liked Shackleton, but he wasn't sure of his future prospects. Shackleton saw his inclusion in the Discovery Expedition as a springboard to a better life, and when he pressed Emily, she signaled that she would marry him on his return. Now, he still had to bring up the subject with Emily's father. He would do this by writing him a formal letter asking permission to marry Emily. He told Charles Darman that he had joined the expedition to make money and earn respect and position. Shackleton posted the letter just before leaving for the Antarctic. This gave him no time to receive a reply while still in England, and thus not having to face family and friends, and Emily, if he was rejected. But Shackleton need not have worried. Charles Darman would reply and give his approval of the Union. However, Shackleton would never get to thank the man, as Charles died shortly after Shackleton set sail. At that point, Emily was free to make her own decisions. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The 1901 Discovery Expedition would depart on August 6, 1901. 
there was a grand send-off, with Shackleton meeting England's new monarch, King Edward VII. Queen Victoria had died earlier that year after 64 years on the throne. The departure of Discovery was celebrated throughout England. To many, the expedition was a symbol of England's rightful place in the world. The Discovery's route would go around the tip of Africa, onto Australia, and then New Zealand. From there, it was Antarctica. The ship, however, would prove to have its share of problems. It was a slow sailer, and Shackleton felt that the masts were too short and the yards too long, which he worried would be problematic in the stormy seas around Antarctica. Also, the ship had leaks. Three weeks into the voyage, it was so bad, the water was head high in the hold. The entire crew was called out to save the cargo, and Shackleton would take charge of a potentially disastrous situation. And he wasn't afraid to dive into things and get the work done. The men appreciated him for this. He wouldn't ask others to do what he wasn't willing to do as well. In a lot of ways, it was a reflection on Shackleton's personality. When disaster was in front of him, he reacted quickly and decisively, and more than not, correctly. Scott would praise Shackleton's response, calling him a, quote, indefatigable worker, end quote. All of this wasn't helped by the fact that the ship was overloaded. In rough weather, Scott said the ship, quote, tossed like a cork, end quote. On the voyage, Shackleton would make several important connections. The first was Hugh Robert Mill, a former librarian at the Royal Geographical Society. Mill was only on the ship for a short time, from England to Madeira. He was hired to straighten out the ship's library and instruct Shackleton on the collecting of scientific data. One specific item was the testing of the density and salinity of water. Shackleton would prove to be ill-suited for the job, which required patience and attention to detail. But that aside, Mill and Shackleton would form a friendship that would last a lifetime, with Mill writing the first biography of Shackleton. Mill and Shackleton were an odd pair. The former was a library guy, but he loved Shackleton's bravado and spirit. He saw Shackleton as an Elizabethan adventurer, such as Francis Drake or Walter Raleigh. Another friendship developed on the ship was with Edward Wilson, the ship's junior surgeon, zoologist, and artist. The 29-year-old Wilson was a quiet, devout Christian who saw the good in everyone and was a bit out of place on discovery. Shackleton would take him under his wing, and the two would spend hours talking about all sorts of things, especially their shared interest in poetry. Wilson had also become a close friend with Robert Falcon Scott, a man who did not make friends easily. Discovery would stop in Cape Town in South Africa and then head east. Because of the ship's slow progress, she would bypass the planned stop in Australia and head straight to New Zealand, arriving at Littleton on November 29th. Along the way, they did some magnetic surveys. Upon arriving in New Zealand, Shackleton would find out about the death of Emily's father, Charles Dorman. Discovery, because of the leaking issues, would be taken into dry dock for major repairs, where she would remain for the next three weeks. During this time, more supplies and provisions would be purchased, and there would be some turnover amongst the crew. One addition of note was a 24-year-old Irishman named Tom Crean. Crean is not really important in today's story, but he will be vital later on in the series while on the Endurance Expedition. It was here that Shackleton and Crean would meet and become friends. Discovery, overloaded with men, supplies, and provisions, would depart Littleton on December 21st. On the ship, there were several dozen sheep to provide meat for the men, and 45 tons of coal was simply plopped on the deck as there was no room below. Every nook and cranny was crammed with something. Things were so overcrowded, many worried the ship would not survive the treacherous waters to the south. A great crowd would be gathered to send the ship off when one of the crew, a seaman named Charles Bonner, climbed the mainmast to wave to the throngs. Bonner, who had been drinking, would fall and die. It was an ominous way to start the enterprise. From New Zealand, Discovery would sail directly south toward Antarctica. And here I want to stop and throw out the old, check out our website for a map staple. 
So if you want to see a map of the Discovery Expedition, specifically around Antarctica, go to explorerspodcast.com. I have posted one there. As most of us are not familiar with the geography of Antarctica, it may help you enjoy the episode. Thus, south to Antarctica went Discovery in Ernest Shackleton. It was a voyage of 1,700 miles, or 2,740 kilometers. Luckily, the weather was good and would hold for most of the time. Discovery would go through the Southern Sea and cross the Antarctic Circle and move into the Ross Sea on January 3, 1902. Here, they would encounter ice for the first time. The ice pack that they approached was a hazardous maze of moving ice and fluctuating lanes of open water. The ship now had to maneuver through this ever-evolving maze, which was a very dangerous process. It only takes one good hit and the ship can go down. Discovery had to weave its way south through the ice along the ever-shifting channels, which could open and close on a whim, and if a storm hit, the winds could slam the ship into a berg. However, for Discovery, their luck would hold. They would, despite their huge load, move through the ice quickly and efficiently, reaching Cape Adair on the Antarctic mainland on January 9th. In contrast, the James Clark Ross expedition had taken 46 days to pick their way through the ice, although in their defense they didn't know where they were going at the time. Cape Adair was where the men of the Southern Cross expedition had overwintered a few years earlier. Scott would land a small party, Shackleton amongst them, to investigate the abandoned camp, but they would find nothing of interest and the ship would move on. At this point, the Antarctic coast turned southerly into the Ross Sea and Discovery followed the coastline. This area of the continent was called Victoria Land. They were pretty much following the path laid out to them by James Clark Ross 60 years earlier. On January 20th, Discovery would stop and send a geological party ashore. Amongst the men was Shackleton. As he explored the area, he and the men would make a discovery when they came upon some dark green moss and orange lichen. And thus, Shackleton's first discovery was not a mountain or glacier or anything so grand, but some primitive plant life. Down the coast Discovery went, the sights stunning along the way, including mountains and glaciers. The ship would go 500 miles, or 800 kilometers, and reach Ross Island in McMurdo Sound. On Ross Island, the men would see two volcanoes, Mount Erebus and Mount Terror, each over 10,000 feet, or 3,000 meters, high. These were named after James Clark Ross's two ships. If the names sound familiar, the two vessels would later take part in the doomed Franklin expedition in the north. It was also here that the expedition would get their first look at the Great Ice Barrier. Today we call this the Ross Ice Shelf, but at the time it was the Great Ice Barrier, or simply the Barrier, and it had first been sighted by the Ross Expedition. The Barrier is probably the most classic image of Antarctica. The ship would have seen a massive wall of ice that stretched along the coast as far as the eye could see, and as high as 50 meters, or 165 feet. On top of the barrier was a flat surface that extended to the horizon. Like I said, it is one of the most iconic views of Antarctica. It is breathtaking and stunning and daunting. In reality, the Great Ice Barrier is 600 kilometers long, or 370 miles, and between 15 and 50 meters high above the water. That's 50 to 165 feet. It is basically a floating table of ice, and it is the world's largest ice shelf. If the ice wasn't there, you'd essentially have a huge bay about the size of France. The ship sailed along the barrier for about a week, dwarfed by the massive wall of ice. The immense nature of the barrier was awe-inspiring to Shackleton and the rest of the crew. Eventually, they would sail past the barrier and reach a peninsula, which Scott dubbed King Edward VII land. This was a new discovery, the exact kind of thing Scott and the team were hoping to find. Now, Scott had some important decisions to make. Summer was waning, and the ice pack would start to get denser. There would be no big overland excursions this season. That would have to wait until next spring, meaning November and December. 
Scott had orders to not let Discovery get locked in the ice. The plan was to set up a camp on the continent and then return to New Zealand for the winter. The men left on the continent would be charged with scientific studies, plus preparing for the interior journey in the spring once Discovery returned. But Scott decided to let Discovery get iced in for the winter. This would allow the men to do extensive scientific research, plus acclimate the men to the polar environment. They would train on skis, work with the sledge dogs, and even make some short excursions into the interior and onto the Great Ice Barrier. By staying, everyone would be primed and ready in the spring. They would not have to sail from New Zealand, reach their camp, and then go through all the steps of preparing for the interior journey. Shackleton was relieved by the decision. He was concerned that Scott would try to purge some of the merchant navy men, including himself. This way, that couldn't happen. Thus, Scott turned Discovery around and sailed back along the barrier and reached McMurdo Sound, just at the edge of the barrier. Along the way, the ship sailed 12 miles, 90 kilometers, into an inlet in the barrier where they found that the ice sloped up. This allowed some of the men to climb to the top of the Great Ice Barrier, the first people to ever do so. Scott would eventually have a camp set up on the southernmost tip of Ross Island at a place they would call Hut Point. Today, not far from that spot, you'll find the McMurdo Station, an American Antarctic research facility. From here, the South Pole is about 900 miles away, or 1,440 kilometers. Ross Island, by the way, is essentially at the edge of the barrier. One side of the island butts up against the ice shelf, while the other was exposed to the ocean, at least in the summer. In time, it would be surrounded by ice. McMurdo Sound is a natural harbor, and the anchorage selected would protect the ship from the pressure of the thickening ice. Several huts would be constructed on the shore, but the decision was made that the crew would live on Discovery for the winter and venture out as needed. The huts on Ross Island would be temporary shelters and used to store coal and provisions. The establishment of the camp allowed the crew to let off some of their cooped-up energy. They played football and celebrated. Meanwhile, it was decided to give the hot air balloon a try to see if anything of help could be viewed from above. And thus the balloon was broken out and launched. Scott would be the first to go up, reaching a height of 600 feet or 180 meters. Shackleton followed, going to 650 feet or 200 meters. Shackleton even took some photos on his turn aloft. Unfortunately, from their vantage point in the balloon, all that Scott and Shackleton could see was the endless icy flatlands of the barrier. Going up in the balloons had taken a bit of faith and courage from Scott and Shackleton. The men were amateurs in the use of a balloon, and they had no way of knowing how it would react in the frigid environment. It's a reminder that, no matter the flaws of Scott and Shackleton, no one would ever doubt their courage. Both were brave and willing to risk their lives for the cause. By the way, regarding the balloon, it developed a serious leak and would never fly again. So with the camp established, it was time for the expedition members to go about their respective jobs. This would mean everything from conducting scientific work, to going on short excursions, to training, and preparing for future tasks. Let's talk about a few of these items. Many of the men, both scientists and explorers, would have to figure out how to get from one place to another on the continent, and nothing was more important than a grand push into the interior, which would come later in the year. This meant that the team had to learn how to use skis, and how to transport provisions on the sledges. This latter item meant that they would have to work with the dogs. Regarding the skis, it was a catastrophe for everyone. No one was an expert in their use, and thus everyone, including Shackleton, flailed around on them and got frustrated. One man fell and broke his leg. Scott suffered some severe bruises in his attempts to use them, and he proclaimed them to be nothing more than a nuisance. This would mean that the men, from top to bottom, would mostly not use the skis, which should have been a great aid if they had had proper training. Regarding the dogs, sledge dogs, when trained properly and worked as a team, had proven to be immensely successful in the Arctic. 
yet no one in the expedition really knew how to use them. There were a couple of men who had had some experience with sledge animals, but they were not experts or trainers. It didn't help that the dogs were not cuddly, like what most of the men were accustomed to. They were, frankly, scary. Sledge dogs are big and tough, and they often fought viciously with each other. In fact, several would die in fights with other dogs. This meant everyone went out of their way to actually avoid working with the dogs, and Scott never pressed the issue. And to be honest, most of the British team did not believe the dogs would be worth the trouble. The fact that the Inuit and other Arctic peoples used dogs was not a positive thing. These were, in the eyes of many of the British, primitives. There was no possible way that they could know better than the English. It was an attitude that was, and would continue to be, deadly on some occasions. Scott, by the way, would call the dogs, quote, worse than useless, end quote. Another factor in the anti-dog bias was the tradition in the British Navy of man-hauling, that is, the men pulling the sledges themselves. Clements Markham, the expedition's organizer, felt that men pulling the sledges, not dogs, was a purer form of polar travel. He would say this about the dogs, quote, In my mind, no journey made with dogs can approach the height of the high conception which is raised when a party of men go forth facing hardships, dangers, and difficulties with their own unaided efforts. Sure, in this cause, the conquest is more nobly won. End quote. This attitude was not dissimilar to the view of the use of oxygen in the early attempts to climb Mount Everest. There was this attitude that a gentleman would not use artificial aids to achieve greatness. Reality would eventually change those attitudes. So while the men were messing around with things like skis and dogs and building huts, the weather was still good enough to do a bit of exploring, and one of those instances was under the command of Shackleton. Scott decided to send a group of men to a pair of islands which were surrounded by the Great Ice Barrier. He felt that it was worth having someone climb one of the heights of the islands and see if it would provide any clues as to what lay in the distance. Shackleton was selected on a coin toss. Yes, someone was tossing coins to decide who was going to go into the wilds of Antarctica. That aside, he was selected, along with his friend Dr. Edward Wilson and Hartley Farrar, the expedition's 23-year-old geologist. It was a bit of an odd decision, as none of the men had any experience on the ice. Still, the three of them would set off on February 19th, pulling an 11-foot-long sledge. They would not use dogs, as no one trusted them. On the sledge, they had three weeks of provisions, as well as a collapsible boat, which Scott insisted they take in case the ice broke up under their feet. The boat was overkill, and it added far too much weight to the sledge. Each man was required to fly their own personal flag on the sledge. This was a conceit of Clements Markham. Everyone had been required to bring along a small flag with their family motto on it. Shackleton said, Fortitudine vincimus, or through endurance we conquer. The flags are a nice example of the old-school vibe that Markham had insisted the men stick to on the expedition. Anyhow, Wilson figured that the islands were 5 to 10 miles away. But the men would quickly discover that distance and perspective are deceptive on the barrier. In reality, the nearest of the islands was 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, from Discovery. The men would set out, and it didn't take long for the weather to turn on them. The temperatures dropped and winds picked up. They struggled forward, but things only seemed to get worse. The sludge was brutally heavy in the storm, and Shackleton refused to get rid of the boat, which would have helped tremendously. As the storm raged around them, the men were only taking six-inch steps. And then, if you can imagine, the weather got worse. It was a total whiteout as the men found themselves in their first Antarctic squall. They blindly pushed forward as they were quickly overwhelmed by exhaustion and early signs of frostbite. Shackleton's ears were blistered badly from the cold and his hand had turned white. After 12 hours, they set up a tent and tried to ride out the ordeal. For a few hours, the men struggled to survive the storm. Someone literally had to hold the tent pole so it wouldn't be carried away by the fierce winds. 
The men had with them a small primus stove to cook some food and make some warm drinks, but there was a problem as no one had ever used the stove before, and they were lucky to even get it going. This is an example of the haphazard nature of the expedition. You have inexperienced men sent into the unknowns of Antarctica. They were hauling a boat, and none of them had any training on how to operate some of the equipment that was critical to their survival. The three men would rest for several hours and then push on after the storm had abated. About two miles from the nearest island, they would be halted by a great crevasse. Shackleton then would make the decision to leave the sledge and most of the gear and proceed on foot to the nearest island, which is called White Island. It was a difficult trek, but the decision was a good one. The men would struggle forward, but reach the island and climb the highest point, a mountain of about 2,700 feet, or 820 meters. They did this despite not having any proper climbing gear, not to mention the cold and wind. What they saw from atop the mountain was amazing. The great ice barrier, with its flat, icy surface, extended as far as they could see. It was an invigorating sight to Shackleton, who was thrilled by the idea of seeing something that no man had ever seen before. He envisioned the barrier as a potential route to the South Pole. After Wilson, who was the expedition's artist as well as doctor, made a quick sketch of the view, the three men would head back to the ship. Upon their return to Discovery, Shackleton, despite being exhausted, could not contain his excitement, the details pouring out of him at a rapid rate to anyone who would listen. Reginald Skelton, the expedition's chief engineer, said that Shackleton, quote, hardly stopped talking until everyone told him to turn in, end quote. Scott was pleased with the results of the excursion, but he was disturbed by the troubles the men had encountered on what he thought was a routine trip. Now, one other excursion conducted at this time that I want to mention did not involve Shackleton, and that was when, two weeks later, 12 men, led by Lieutenant Michael Barn, went to the northern point of Ross Island, which was called Cape Crozier, after Captain Francis Crozier, who was one of the ship commanders under Ross 60 years earlier. He was also the second-in-command on the Franklin Expedition. Anyhow, Cape Crozier was designated as a message location. Here, the expedition would leave messages for any ships that would come in search of them. On the march to the Cape, one of the crewmen, a man named George Vince, lost his footing on an icy slope. He was wearing flat-soled boots, not ideal for walking on ice. He would fall 300 feet, or 90 meters, into the sea and drown. Shackleton would lead a search party for Vince, but it was hopeless. The body was never recovered. Lieutenant Barn, who was a 24-year-old aristocrat, took the death of Vince badly, and it would ultimately affect Scott's decision when picking a team to make a go for the interior of the continent. So, winter was coming to Antarctica, and for the men of Discovery, it would mean 120 days of darkness. The crew hustled to train and prepare before the darkness set in, but the lack of expertise and experience was evident. We talked about the fact that no one really learned how to use the skis, or handle the dogs properly, but it was more than that. There were lots of little things, such as many of the men not being able to erect a tent in a storm, or dress properly, or use simple but essential equipment, such as when Shackleton struggled to fire up a stove. Scott said it best when he wrote, quote, Our ignorance is deplorable. End quote. Speaking of Scott, he understood that the 47 men of the expedition needed to stay occupied and engaged once winter began. On the Belgian Antarctic expedition, with their ship Belgica stuck in the ice, the men fought from going bonkers due to boredom and helplessness. One man who couldn't take it any longer simply started to walk back to Belgium. Idleness was toxic in a lonely, cramped, and desolate environment. Scott knew that. When the winter did finally come on April 23, 1902, instead of bemoaning the bleak months ahead, Scott had a big party thrown to try and demonstrate that everything would be all right. So, with the long winter ahead, entertainment was important for the crew's mental well-being. 
and that was the purvey of Shackleton, and he took this very seriously. Before leaving England, he had made sure that he had ample stores of wigs and costumes for theatrical shows, plus there was a typewriter so he could put out a newsletter. The result was a steady stream of plays and performances and poetry readings, anything to keep the crew engaged. The men appreciated the shows, many participating in some fashion. As for the newsletter, Shackleton would create the monthly South Polar Times, with himself as editor. For content, Shackleton would take contributions from all over the ship. This would include poetry, scientific articles, humor bits, anything that might entertain and interest the crew. Dr. Wilson, the artist, would provide some fine illustrations, and Barn, the young officer, contributed some nice caricatures. Shackleton would write a poem titled The Great Barrier under the pseudonym of Nemo. In all, he would produce five issues of the paper, and it was a great success, as anything to help pass the time was welcome in the gloom of the Antarctic winter. By the way, the ship had electric lighting provided by a windmill, but it was damaged by high winds, and thus oil lamps and candles provided light in the ship. And no one left the ship unless necessary, as the temperatures plunged to as low as negative 62 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 52 degrees Celsius, and that did not take into account the fierce winds. Now, one issue that did rear its ugly head that winter was scurvy. We have talked about scurvy many times in this podcast, so just a quick overview. Scurvy occurs when a person does not get enough vitamin C. For centuries, it had been an issue on long ocean voyages as well as desert and polar expeditions. Scurvy caused inflamed gums, fatigue, and muscle and joint pain, and eventually death. At this time, no one knew the link between vitamin C and scurvy, but it was generally understood that fresh fruit, oranges and limes, for instance, help stave off the disease. The expedition had brought meat and fruit and vegetables, but much of this was tinned. Unfortunately, in the canning process, nutrients were mostly destroyed. Now, it was generally believed that eating fresh meat helped keep scurvy at bay, and that is true. Fresh meat doesn't provide much vitamin C, but what little it does provide is enough to help prevent the disease, at least for a time. The expedition had mostly avoided eating seal and penguin meat, mainly because the men, including Scott, disliked the taste of it and at times when they did eat it, it was overcooked, which tended to kill the nutrients as well. Anyhow, when signs of scurvy did appear, Scott ordered the issue addressed immediately. Lime juice was placed at the table of every meal, and seal steaks were prepared daily, with the cooks ordered to try different ways to prepare it to make it more appealing to the crew. Within a couple of weeks, the problem of scurvy was alleviated. Not totally gone, but mostly contained. So during these long months, Shackleton would be engaged with a newsletter in organizing entertainment for the ship's crew, but he still had a lot of downtime, and like all the men, he was supremely bored. He passed his time by reading, often falling back to poetry to pass the hours. But he did form some friendships as well. One was with a seaman named Frank Wilde. Wilde doesn't play a part in this phase of our story, but he and Shackleton would become fast friends, and in the future, wherever Shackleton went, Wilde would follow. A second friendship was not really a new one, but a continued friendship with Dr. Edward Wilson. As I noted earlier, the two loved poetry, and Shackleton liked to talk, while Wilson liked to listen. It was a great combination. Wilson would say, quote, Shackleton's conversation is sparkly and witty, and he has a wonderful memory and has an amazing treasure of the most interesting anecdotes, end quote. With Wilson, Shackleton often spoke of his future plans with Emily, plus he would confess that he longed for a chance to make a go for the South Pole. Wilson was a great listener and sympathetic toward Shackleton, who he understood quite well. As I noted earlier, Wilson, the quiet, even-killed doctor, would not only become Shackleton's friend, but also Robert Falcon Scott's closest confidant. It speaks to Wilson's character, the ability to find common ground with two such distinct personalities. 
Now, speaking of the South Pole, at some point, Scott was going to have to announce his plans for an expected venture, which would take place later in the year, once spring arrived. To be on that team was the prize that almost everyone wanted. But Scott was a secretive man when it came to such decisions. Dr. Wilson said Scott was, quote, strangely reticent about letting a soul on the ship know what his immediate plans are, end quote. And Thomas Hodgkins, the expedition's biologist, said he often didn't know what the specifics of a plan were until five minutes before they were supposed to execute it. The truth is that Scott had a difficult time trusting others, especially the non-Royal Navy men in the expedition. He was guarded and at times plagued by self-doubt. He hid these doubts within the rigors of military structure. This meant, to him, giving orders, and others following them without debate. He hated to be challenged. He felt it showed weakness. It was one of the reasons there was tension between the Merchant Navy men and the Royal Navy men. The former were accustomed to asking questions in a more relaxed atmosphere. That didn't fly for many of the Royal Navy men, including Scott. All of this fed Scott's own self-doubts, and he often retreated inward at those times. This inability of Scott to work with others meant for some odd decisions. A leader who was more open and nimble would have been comfortable soliciting advice regarding such major decisions. Scott Wood, in mid-June, finally announced his plans for a spring excursion onto the Great Ice Barrier and potentially toward the Pole. It would be himself and Dr. Wilson. That was it. No one else. Scott had considered taking Lieutenant Barn, but as I noted earlier, the young man was still affected deeply by the sailor who had died under his command, and Scott thought it best not to push him. And Albert Armitage, the expedition's second-in-command, had felt that Scott had promised him to be included on the land party. Armitage was bitterly resentful at his exclusion, and it caused a serious rift between the two men. Scott had selected Wilson because he wanted a doctor in case there was an injury or an illness, and he felt that a small party offered the best chances of success, as they didn't have to carry as many provisions. The selection of Wilson was very strange. I mean, Scott himself was an obvious choice. He was young and strong and fit. But Wilson was not an adventurer. He was a doctor and a zoologist and an artist. He had had tuberculosis when he was younger and had initially been rejected for the expedition due to health reasons. Only Scott's intervention had saved him. Wilson had not asked to go on any such venture or expected to be selected. But when Scott came to him and asked him to go, Wilson couldn't say no to his friend. But Wilson would urge Scott to include a third person. He argued that if there were only two of them on the journey and one of them were injured or died, it would be difficult to get back to Discovery alone. Scott would agree with Wilson, whose counsel he trusted, and ask for a recommendation for a third man. Wilson would offer up Shackleton, vouching for him and telling Scott about Shackleton's wishes and motives. His arguments must have been persuasive because Scott would agree Shackleton was in. Now, I want to say that what Wilson was doing was risky because he had some concerns about Shackleton, and that surrounded Shackleton's health. Wilson had noted that Shackleton would, on occasion, suffer from a shortness of breath and coughing fits. He suspected Shackleton had a mild heart or respiratory problem. Remember, Shackleton had never had a health exam for the expedition. He had received his appointment while at sea. Wilson would write, quote, For some reason, I don't think he, Shackleton, has the legs the job wants, end quote. But Wilson knew how badly Shackleton wanted the opportunity, and he felt that Shackleton's energy and determination would carry him through the venture. While we don't know for sure, historians believe that Shackleton did suffer some kind of health issue. Perhaps it was a congenital heart defect such as a hole in the heart, add in scurvy and an iffy diet, and things weren't exactly perfect. We will talk quite a bit about Shackleton's health in this series, but he appears to have known that he had a problem, as over the years he would go to great lengths to avoid being examined by doctors. 
So health problems or not, Shackleton was now part of the three-man team that was making a run into the interior of Antarctica and possibly to the South Pole. At a minimum, the men expected to set a record for the furthest south anyone had ever gone. The plan was to send an advance team ahead to set up supply depots along the way, as well as to help haul the expedition provisions, at least for one leg of the journey. Otherwise, Scott, Wilson, and Shackleton would have five heavy sledges pulled by 19 dogs. They would carry 1,700 pounds, or 750 kilograms, of gear and supplies to sustain the men and dogs for 13 weeks. But again, there would be an advance team setting up supply depots along the route to help with this process. A few weeks before departing, Scott ordered Shackleton to take charge of the dogs. This was a mostly hopeless task. Shackleton didn't have the expertise or the patience for such a thing, and there was no one to guide him. Plus, the time frame he was given was woefully short. Sledge dogs need to learn how to work as a team and understand who's their boss. And on the flip side, the men needed to understand the dogs, especially their limitations. And in the end, the dogs would be overloaded, which would be a problem sooner than later. Scott, Shackleton, and Wilson would depart on November 2nd, 1902. The trio stood for a formal photo before departing, a photo I have posted on the website if you are interested. The plan was to head straight toward the South Pole across the Great Ice Barrier. It was an attractive option, flat, icy terrain, with no mountains or valleys to slow them down, at least as far as they could see. The advance team, led by Lieutenant Barn, had departed three days earlier with 650 pounds, or 300 kilos, of provisions. They would deposit the supplies at various points along the route. Scott and his team would just have to follow their tracks. It was a smart and efficient plan. The men of Discovery would push inland for 11 days, Scott's group eventually catching up to Barnes's party. The dogs, so unruly and unpredictable, actually performed well to start, especially on the firm, icy surface of the barrier. On November 13th, the two parties would reach a latitude of 78 degrees and 55 minutes, a furthest south record. At this point, half of Barnes's men would return to Discovery. Two days later, Barnes and the rest of the men would say their goodbyes and head back to the ship as well. Now, it was just Scott, Shackleton, and Wilson. They had 80 days of food and figured they could push south for about 12 weeks. There was a mountain range to the west, but as far as they could see to the south, it was flat. With luck, that flat extended all the way to the pole. The men were confident and hoping to make history. Now, despite this initial progress, there were signs of trouble ahead. First, the snow on the surface of the barrier was becoming increasingly soft as the temperature rose. Soft snow was the bane of a sledge. It just made it difficult to pull, whether by man or dog. Second, the dogs were struggling as they got weaker with each passing day. The truth is that they were overworked and underfed, and the food they were getting wasn't what they needed. A sledge dog requires a diet of 50% fat. Instead, what they were getting was a mix of biscuits and codfish, which has very little fat. And thus, the dogs were losing weight far too quickly, and in the process, losing their strength and stamina. An expert would have known this, but it was beyond the men of the expedition. Also, the soft snow forced the dogs to work even harder. It was not a good situation. A third issue was Shackleton. He had developed a persistent cough and had lost some weight, and he tired easiest of the three men. Plus, his cough often kept everyone up at night. Add to all of this was the fact that the men's use of skis was non-existent. They had brought three sets, but had found them too difficult to use. Again, a little training would have opened up all sorts of possibilities for Shackleton and the others, but that wasn't happening. The soft snow and weakening dogs slowed progress considerably. One day, the team only made three miles, or five kilometers. Scott took note of how drained the dogs were, saying they, quote, seemed to lose all heart, end quote. On November 15th, the men would be forced to kill the dogs that were too weak to go forward. 
Their remains were used to feed the other dogs. Scott had Wilson and Shackleton kill the animals, as he had a lifelong aversion to cruelty to animals and disliked the sight of blood. At this point, the men and the remaining dogs could no longer haul all the gear and provisions. Thus, Scott set up a relay system. For this, half the gear was loaded onto the sledges and hauled forward for one mile. The sledges were then hauled back to the starting point, and the other half of the stuff loaded on, and then brought forward a mile. This meant that the men and the dogs were traveling three miles for every mile that they actually advanced. It was an inefficient system, and they were only making about five to ten miles a day. The typical day was to haul the sledges for as long as they could, eat, sleep, repeat. At night, the men would write in their journals, and they often read poetry aloud to each other. Arguments were not uncommon, especially between Scott and Shackleton, who were the strongest personalities of the three. Thankfully, Wilson was an excellent mediator, and he made sure things didn't get out of hand. Still, there was a growing tension between the two officers. In this fashion, the men pushed, slowly, south across the barrier. By early December, they all knew that any hope for the South Pole was gone. At their pace, they didn't have the food for such a trek. Now the talk was to try to reach a latitude of 85 degrees south, but even that would be difficult. By the way, when I talk about 78 and 82 and 85 degrees, that sort of thing, I'm referring to the distance south of the equator. The equator is 0 degrees, the South Pole is 90 degrees, so the higher the number our players reach, the closer they are to the pole. On December 14th, Scott stopped and set up a supply depot. Here, the men would leave a large cache of provisions to be used on the return journey. This would lighten their load considerably. At this point, Scott, Shackleton, and Wilson had been out for six weeks. Food was now the expedition's biggest concern. On a typical day, the men had chopped bacon and biscuits for breakfast. For lunch, it was biscuits and hot chocolate. Dinner would include pemmican, bacon, biscuits, and cheese. Pemmican is a mix of dried meat and fat. Also, the biscuits and bacon, and anything else available, were usually boiled into a porridge-like substance called hoosh. It is estimated that the men were getting maybe half the calories they needed. They were burning up their fat reserves and losing weight far too quickly. They could only go for another three weeks like this before having to turn around. And another thing, they were getting virtually no vitamin C in their diet. And, as you can imagine, that leads to the reappearance of scurvy. The first signs of the disease was Shackleton getting inflamed gums. Within a few days, the same signs were found on Wilson and Scott. Despite the struggles, the men pushed on, but it was brutal. They were each pulling a 175-pound, or 80-kilo, sledge, and lucky to go one mile per hour. On Christmas Day, the team would enjoy their first good meal in ages, eating double rations, including seal's liver and bacon. Shackleton would surprise everyone with some plum pudding he had been saving. With the extra food, the men would be reinvigorated and cover 11 miles, or 17 kilometers, that day. After talking things over with his men, Scott decided the team would push on for three more days and try to reach 82 degrees latitude. The team would reach their goal on December 28th, but their health was rapidly declining. In addition to scurvy, all the men had lost weight, and they were suffering from snow blindness. The weight loss was dangerous, as the men's bodies simply couldn't stay warm. A blizzard on the 29th would keep the men in their tent, but instead of turning around, Scott decided he wanted to keep going for another day. However, he ordered Shackleton to stay at the tent, saying he needed him to watch the gear. It was an odd order, as it was not like there was any around to come steal stuff, and Shackleton could have gone on for another day. Some people have speculated that Scott wanted to deny Shackleton the honor of reaching further south, but that's unlikely. Instead, Scott probably understood that Shackleton was in the worst shape of the three men, and he simply wanted to make one last dash without the sledges and dogs and the team's weakest member holding him back. 
Scott and Wilson would thus set out on December 30th, but they wouldn't go far, only about 2 miles, or 3.5 kilometers, before calling it a day. They had reached a latitude of 82 degrees, 17 minutes, a world furthest south record. In all of this, the team would never leave the Great Ice Barrier and were still 550 miles, or 880 kilometers, from the pole. They could see some mountains in the distance to the south, but not much else. They had gone about 280 miles, or 450 kilometers, since leaving Discovery. Everyone was disappointed in the result. Deep down, they had dreamed of reaching the South Pole, or at least 85 degrees south. 82 degrees was fine, but it wasn't anything epic. Scott said he suffered from a, quote, deep sense of disappointment, end quote. Shackleton was more enthusiastic, saying they had reached a, quote, wonderful place and deserves the trouble it takes to get here, end quote. Now, despite turning around, the three men still had a long way to go. They had 14 days of food, and their supply depot was 100 miles away, or 160 kilometers. That meant 7 miles a day. But the big issue was scurvy. The men were simply wasting away. It was a race to get back to Discovery. At this point, there were 13 dogs remaining, but they were terribly weak. In fact, within a week, only 5 of them would be left. Scott's soft spot for animals was an issue here. Even as some of the dogs refused to continue, Scott ordered them put on the sledges and brought along, unnecessarily adding to the load. It defied common sense, and he refused to eat the dogs after they died as he, and Shackleton, believed that the animals were somehow tainted and consuming them would contribute to scurvy. Another thing about Scott was his inability to recognize how perilous the situation had gotten. On the struggle to the depot, he inexplicably took a detour and picked up some geological samples, meaning rocks. Again, it defied common logic. The men were racked with scurvy and weakening by the day, yet he gathered up a bunch of rocks and loaded them onto the sledge. The next major issue was finding the supply depot. Scott had used a single black flag to mark the spot, but in the Antarctic, discerning a black spot on the ice was nearly impossible. And if the men walked past the depot, well, without that food, they were as good as dead. But here the three explorers would be lucky. As Scott was looking through his binoculars, the mist would break and he would spot the flag. If he had been looking a few moments later, he probably would have bypassed the location as the mist reformed. At the depot, the men ate a good meal, which helped immeasurably, but in reality, they were all sick. Scott's ankles were swollen and painful, and an old knee injury of Wilson's was causing considerable pain. And Shackleton was the worst and fading fast. He was coughing up blood, and his gums were increasingly swollen and turning black. He was also suffering from a shortness of breath, fatigue, and aches. He could barely sleep due to a violent cough. In private, Wilson confessed to Scott that Shackleton might not survive the return journey. In some ways, this galvanized Scott. Going forward, he made a beeline for discovery. However, the state of Shackleton's health only grew worse. He got so weak, he could no longer help pull the sledges. This forced the men to dump all non-essentials from the sledges, including two of the three sets of skis. Also, the last two dogs would die, so Scott and Wilson would have to pull the load. By the way, the men just left the dead dogs, which would have provided some much-needed fresh meat. The next weeks were difficult ones, especially for Shackleton, as he had to rest often, and his inability to help pull the sledge hurt his pride. Still, he was grateful and inspired by his companions, saying, quote, Captain Scott and Dr. Wilson could not have done more for me than they did, end quote. On January 18th, Shackleton would collapse with chest pains, and his deteriorating health became more and more of a point of contention with Scott, who resented having to coddle Shackleton. To Wilson, Scott called Shackleton a lame duck and an invalid but Wilson defended Shackleton, who had pushed as hard as any of them when able, and he had shown great willpower despite his health issues. Wilson even berated Scott for talking about one of his men in such a fashion. 
On January 21st, Shackleton was so bad, he decided to give the skis another try, and this may have saved his life. While he was no expert, his perilous situation forced him to figure it out, and soon he was glided along the snow in stretches instead of sinking into it. The men quickly realized that it had been a serious mistake not using the skis and regretted dumping the other sets. On January 26th, the three would have some encouraging signs. They would run into tracks made by a surveying party, and they caught some whiffs of smoke from Mount Erebus, which was an active volcano. It gave them some fresh hope. Two days later, they reached another supply depot. For the first time in months, they were not hungry. However, Shackleton was in a terrible state. Years later, he would say that night he would hear Wilson tell Scott that he didn't think Shackleton was going to survive the night. On hearing that, Shackleton said he resolved to keep going. He refused to submit to the cold and despair. The next morning, Shackleton was still alive, and he would get up and push on. Wilson said he was like a man possessed. Now, despite Shackleton's resolve, he was in awful shape. He was so weak, he couldn't even ski or walk at times, and he would have to ride on the sledge, pulled by Wilson and Scott. This was a humiliating thing to the prideful Shackleton, being reduced to being hauled by his companions. It was something that forever shamed him, and something his critics would gleefully bring up. On February 3, 1903, the three explorers' trial would finally come to an end. They would encounter two men, Louis Bernacchi and Reginald Skelton, the expedition's physicist and chief engineer, respectively, who barely recognized them. They had traveled 93 days, gone 960 miles, or 1,540 kilometers, which included relaying the sledges and crossed approximately 300 miles, or 480 kilometers, of new territory. Once back on board Discovery, a great celebration was held. There was mutton, soup, and plum pudding. Shackleton attended the party, but he was so exhausted, he would retire to his cabin even before the first course was done. So Scott and Shackleton and Wilson had set a record for further south. It wasn't as far as they wanted, but it was still a record, and the route they had blazed showed promise as a possible way to finally reach the South Pole. Now, the expedition was scheduled for another year in Antarctica. For Shackleton, he imagined taking some time to recover and then being assigned some light duties until he was back on his feet. However, Scott had some different ideas. He established a new guideline, saying that all of his officers should be healthy enough so that they could, quote, at any moment be called upon to undergo hardships and exposure, end quote. There was no way Shackleton could pass such a directive, and with this, Scott would order Shackleton to be evacuated on the next supply ship, which was due in the next few weeks. For Shackleton, this was a humiliation. The rule was squarely aimed at him. Now, there is some controversy about this decision. Albert Armitage, the expedition's second-in-command, writing 20 years later, claimed to have challenged Scott on Shackleton's dismissal. He said Scott just wanted to get rid of Shackleton, who he didn't like. And he said that Scott, while talking to Wilson and Shackleton, had said to them, quote, Come here, you bloody fools, end quote. Wilson asked Scott if he was referring to him, to which Scott said no. And thus Shackleton replied, quote, Then it must have been me. Right, you are the worst bloody fool of the lot, and every time you dare speak to me like that, you will get it back, end quote. Now, before we take that story as gospel, as I noted earlier, Armitage and Scott had fallen out with one another. Thus, many consider Armitage's writing unreliable. But it falls into the narrative about Scott's anti-merchant navy bias. The idea that he was weeding out the non-royal navy men isn't far-fetched. In fact, when Shackleton was sent home, Scott would ask for volunteers to go with him, as the relief ship had brought some new men. Scott figured that the malcontents and soft types would leap at the chance to leave a year early, and when most of the volunteers turned out to be merchant navy types, he would feel himself vindicated in his views. 
However, I want to stress that Scott's decision about Shackleton had real merit. Shackleton's health had endangered the party. He had been sick, had concealed it, and Scott suspected as much. As the commander of the expedition, Scott was within his rights to be rid of Shackleton, even if it was more personal than professional. No matter, this does bring up the rift that had grown between the two men. Scott had never been comfortable with Shackleton, and not just because he was from the Merchant Navy. Shackleton had been popular with the crew, but some, including Scott, didn't care for him. His breezy nature wore on people over time. Some were jealous of him, while others felt he was shallow and self-serving. This is something you find with Shackleton for his entire life. The views about him are amazingly divergent. Some people love him, some despise him. A month after returning from the journey into the continent's interior, Shackleton was mostly recovered, but still very weak. One of the expedition's doctors noted the effects of scurvy were gone, although there were some lingering asthma issues. But that wouldn't save Shackleton from his banishment, which stung him deeply. He had expected to come home a hero. Instead, he was leaving his comrades in Antarctica, the mission not yet complete. On March 1st, the crew of Discovery, which by the way was still trapped in the ice, would give Shackleton a rousing send-off, including three roaring cheers. He was touched by their display, and it was a testament to how much they liked him. Still shaky, he would walk slowly to the supply ship. The next day, the vessel would depart. Shackleton would go back to New Zealand, where he would help organize provisions for a relief ship, heading back to A Discovery. Also, he would send Emily a telegram saying, quote, Broken down in chest, returning southern sledge journey, suffering scurvy and overstrain. Don't worry, nearly well, coming home. End quote. From there, Shackleton would head back to England. Scott had gotten rid of him, and he couldn't help but feel humiliated by it all. Now, before we wrap up, I do want to talk a bit more about the Discovery Expedition. As noted before, Discovery was icebound as of March 1903, something Scott had not anticipated. If Scott had brought an ice master on the expedition, he might have avoided the situation. Instead, the ship was stuck, and she would never break free of the ice until 1904, which was an embarrassment to Clements Markham and the expedition committee back in England. And that's because they needed a relief ship to help get Discovery out. The problem was the committee did not have enough money to do this, and the government would have to intervene, essentially sidelining Markham and the committee. As for Discovery, explosives and sawing parties tried to free the ship, but without success. Thus, a plan was put into motion to abandon the vessel and evacuate all the expedition's members. However, in February of 1904, the ice would suddenly open and Discovery would be able to break free of the ice pack. It's an example of how polar conditions are unpredictable, something Scott should have known from his history books and could have been told by an ice master. Just because the sea was free of ice one year didn't mean it would be the next. To make such assumptions was foolish. Anyhow, the expedition would return to England, and despite the fact that they had almost lost their ship, they had a lot of things to crow about. Let's run down some of the expedition's accomplishments. In late 1903, Scott had led an excursion that determined the location of the magnetic South Pole, ascended a 7,000-foot, or 2,130-meter mountain, and discovered a snow-free area called a dry valley, a rare phenomenon. He had traveled 700 miles, or 1,125 kilometers, in 59 days, all without dogs, which only increased his prejudice against them. The expedition had also made many discoveries, including mapping hundreds of mountains and numerous glaciers and landmarks. They had even found an emperor penguin colony near Cape Crozier. And of course, there was the furthest south record. It was all good stuff, and there would be awards and a promotion for Scott when he got back. And he would go on to write a successful book about the mission. People admired him and the men of the expedition for their hard work and determination. 
And as for Shackleton, well, he was just a junior officer who had been booted from the mission. Scott must have felt good to have been rid of the man. However, there is one thing that Scott had not foreseen with regards to his treatment of Shackleton, and that was that he was giving the charming Irishman a full year in England all to himself as the voice of the Discovery Expedition. Shackleton, despite his disappointment in leaving the expedition, would return to England and find that people wanted to talk to him. Newspapers and politicians and the public wanted to know more about their furthest south journey and the exotic world that no one hardly knew anything about. And this will give Shackleton a stage that will turn him into a national figure at home. It will mean interviews, speeches, lectures, and cocktail parties, and these are arenas where Shackleton will thrive. And thus, Ernest Shackleton now had name recognition, experience, and supporters should he elect to conduct his own Antarctic expedition in the future. And on that note, we will wrap up for today. I hope you've enjoyed this story of Ernest Shackleton and the Discovery Expedition. Thanks again for listening. Please take care. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.